everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. And here we go. Uh, welcome again uh, to Controversies in Church History. Uh, this, uh, this month's talk is, uh, is on the definition of the Marian dogmas, the two Marian dogmas of the Immaculate Conception and the um, Assumption of Mary in the 19th century. And I've titled it Necessary Additions because the sort of controversy involved here is uh, why were these doctrines formally defined only in the 19th and 20th century? And why were they formally defined by the Pope, mostly on his authority, mostly, in the 19th and 20th centuries? Because there is some controversy about this. And, um, and so when I want to start out, I want to sort of lay out here, I, I'm assuming everybody in this room actually knows this, but just for the sake of listeners, people maybe uh, who don't know, um, there are four Marian dogmas you have to adhere to if you are a Catholic, Latin Rite Catholic. Two of them are ancient, of ancient provenance, and there's not a whole lot of question about these. The divine motherhood, right? That Mary is not only the mother, was not only the mother of Jesus of Nazareth, the human being, but also the mother of, well, the second person of the Trinity, the mother of God. This is, of course, defined by the Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in 431, which declared it to be uh, so. And so that's something that's never been seriously questioned, at least not within the Catholic world or in the Eastern Orthodox world. The second doctrine has never been formally defined, but, and there have been, again, there's always minority voices about most things in the church, uh, but the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary, uh, again, for the most part, has had widespread assent since the ancient world. Catholicism, mostly in Eastern Orthodoxy, all this is different, by the way, if we're talking about Protestantism, so I'm going to keep that in mind as well. But um, both of these have ancient provenance, and they're still, of course, obviously required um, the assent of this to be a, a Catholic in good standing. And the sources of the belief for this, again, I mentioned this briefly because I'm not going to have too much time to talk about it. Uh, obviously, in the case of um, divine motherhood, you have the ecumenical council doing it formally. But the perpetual virginity of Mary is very ancient. I mean, it goes back as far as we have, you know, extra biblical writings about Mary, probably about the third century or so. Uh, and again, this is in liturgy, liturgical works, uh, as well as writings of the Father. So it's, again, we have those sorts of beliefs. The modern dogmas are a little different, and especially the first one, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and different partly because of the way it's defined, and we'll come to this, um, by the uh, Catholic Church in the modern world. And that dogma, if you don't know, is that Mary was protected from original sin from the moment of her conception in the womb of her mother, according to tradition of St. Anne. Um, that's the definition in, in brief. Um, the other one is, of course, the assumption of Mary into heaven. That is to say, when she ended her earthly life, she was assumed body and soul into heaven uh, uh, when that happened. And um, those were only made binding by papal authority, as I said before, 1854, of Conception, uh, 1950. And so the question will become for us, um, you know, these things were never defined formally previously, never made binding. So the question becomes, why the church do this? And um, uh, my preliminary answer, I'm going to kind of go here, because I, I, as I research this, there's not really a lot of talk about this amongst historians, especially, um, I know secular historians better than I do church historians. Um, my preliminary answer has to do with uh, concerns about uh, modern thought, and especially beliefs about, uh, modern beliefs about human nature that were perceived to be a threat by, especially popes in the 19th and 20th century. 
and uh, I think prompted them. Again, on a human level, I'm not talking about one thing I need to clear up again. I always say this at the beginning of my lectures. I'm not going to. I'm touching on theology here. I'm not a theologian. I make no. <laughs> I make no. Um, I make no guarantees about my theological opinions here. They're just opinions. Uh, I'm thinking more in terms of the historical context and things they were reacting to at the time. In a more secular sense, you would put it in that way. But that's my preliminary answer. I'll explain what I mean by that as I go along. Hopefully, it'll become clear enough. All right. So briefly have to discuss uh, the development of both of these doctrines because they do, especially the, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception undergoes a lot more than the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary into Heaven. Um, the patristic evidence, uh, if you go back to the early church fathers, pretty much all of them teach that she was sinless, most of them, um, but there's really no clearly evident uh, teaching in the patristic era with regards to Mary and original sin, at least the way the modern church, uh, the definition of 1854 is there. Um, the reason for this is partly because they're not thinking in those terms, um, especially uh, Eastern theologians. They'll refer to her as immaculate over and over again, liturgical hymns, stuff like this. But they don't always mean, uh, often mean what, again, we mean by it as Roman Catholics, that specific definition of 1854 where she's you know, protected from original sin from the moment of her conception, partly because, of course, they have very different notions of what original sin means in the East. Um, and... Um, and partly sometimes immaculate just means she's venerable. So there's lots of, it's a lot of times in polemics in the past, Latin theologians would sort of take those things out of context and take them a little farther than they would actually go. So especially in the East, um, there was a problem with that uh, in terms of the patristic evidence. And in fact, uh, there are a few uh, major, major church fathers who actually thought she had sinned. Um, the three that I have down here are Origen, St. Basil of Caesarea, and St. John Chrysostom. Um, they actually claim that she sinned by doubting Christ, and they're referring to passages in uh, the Gospels um, when, for example, she's in the temple uh, in Luke where she's trying to find him. You know, in fact, she sort of doubts. I, I, honestly, these things don't seem like sins to me, but hey, uh, they're, they're, they're church fathers. So, um, And the story at the wedding at Cana, right, where she sort of orders bosses uh, uh, Jesus around to, to turn the water into wine. These are taken as being doubts about, um, and there's some sort of moral connotation about this, basically. Uh, others claim that she was, she was purified of sin totally, but not from her conception, only from the time of her, she was in her womb. They're thinking, by the way, the writers who make that claim of, like, say, John the Baptist, right, where he's clearly given a mission when he's in the womb, but not from his conception in, in the scriptures. Uh, others claim that she was only sanctified or given grace from the time of the Annunciation, because that's when the, you know, the Bible, uh, Gabriel clearly says, you are full of grace, you are highly favored, whatever you want to <laughs> translate that controversial, another controversial phrase uh, there. Um, and one other thing to note is there has always been, by the way, a line of theologians in the East who has, um, um, who has denied um, something like that modern definition of... Um, the Immaculate Conception of 1854, that she was, you know, totally uh, prevent, prevented from sinning from the moment of her conception. Again, this has gone back and forth, and it's never been sort of, um, as far as I'm aware, it's never been the majority position, but it's always been there. And you have saints who've written this in the Eastern tradition, so that's always been there. On the other hand, there are writers in the early church in the patristic era who write things that sound a lot like, or sound pretty close to, or at least not incompatible with that modern definition. I don't have time to go into all the all the um, uh, all the um, uh, all the writers, but 
people like St. Andrew of Crete, uh, who's, I believe, he, he the one who wrote the Akathist hymn, I can't remember. Uh, but he's a hymn writer, a very famous one in the Eastern tradition. He um, writes things that are, you know, very, 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 uh, hey there, uh, very, very high in terms of the praise of Mary. It sounds sort of close uh, like this. St. John of Damascus, who is sort of, sort of the parallel with Aquinas in the East to a certain degree, uh, also says things that sound very close uh, to say, suggesting she was protected from sinning from the moment of her conception. Uh, as well as people like uh, Photios of Constantinople, who's a saint in the East, and someone who, um, again, these are revered saints within the Eastern tradition. You also have, of course, and this is the ironic thing, our feast, the Western Feast of the Immaculate Conception, actually comes from the East. Uh, it was actually called, and it still is called, the Feast of the Conception of St. Anne in the East, but it dates from the East in the 6th century. Um, and actually will come into the West in the 11th century through England. I'm not sure, I have it in my notes somewhere, but I didn't bring them with me. Um, but it'll eventually sort of translate itself to the West, where uh, eventually they will begin to start talking about uh, the Immaculate Conception in our terms. Um, but even in the East, in the second millennium, after the year 1000, there are Eastern uh, theologians, some of them saints, who, uh, who do come out and explicitly say that she was preserved from sending from the moment of her conception. The most important of these uh, has to be St. Gregory Palamas, uh, who's very important in the Eastern tradition. He says this explicitly. Uh, people like George Scolarios, who was the, um, he was the last uh, patriarch of Constantinople before the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. Nicholas Cabasilas, who's a 14th century theologian. Uh, several patriarchs into the 16th and 17th century of Constantinople, I believe one other, one other important see, maintained this up until about to the 17th century. Um, as did, as far as I'm aware, the Russian church up through, I believe, into the 17th century also maintained this. Uh, I think it changed afterwards um, from the time of Peter the Great onward, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't have it in my notes, but uh, it will change even after the Russian church begins to adopt um, um, a position against this idea. Interestingly enough, the, uh, anybody know who the old believers are in Russia? These are, this is the schism. They maintain, to this day, the, the Immaculate Conception, more or less as Rome defines it. So um, there had been this, uh, there had been, again, a difference of opinion, obviously, in the East on this particular, particular definition of her sinlessness. Uh, and then finally, when it gets into the West, you have serious debates about this, um, in fact, initially, people like someone like St. Bernard actually came out against this. This is, this is too much praise for the Blessed Virgin. And he was someone who promoted Marian devotion in a big way. Uh, but it did quickly become to be, and I say this, I say this, the term immaculate being applied in that, in that way, again, that she was uh, conceived without original sin, um, comes to be favored by most of the major religious orders in Western Europe by the 13th century. Cistercians, Bernard's order, uh, Benedictines, Carmelites, Franciscans. The one major order that doesn't uh, like this at all are the Dominicans. And they don't like this for a couple of reasons. And we're talking St. Albert the Great. Aquinas is the most famous. The big reason, the big objection they have is that if Mary is exempt from original sin, what does she need a savior for? And that is, of course, the big problem uh, with the belief. And again, I'm not, I'm not judging the, the... Again, I'm just relaying this stuff as theology. Um... The person who basically comes up with a solution to this is uh, uh, Duns Scotus, Johannes Duns Scotus, the uh, at least English-trained theologian. I don't know if he's actually English or not, but <clears throat> his idea was that um, God's grace uh, to save us from sin basically could be both 
reparatory, that is because it rescues us from original sin who were tainted by it, but could also be preventative, that is, say, it could prevent someone from falling into it in the first place. And that's the sort of distinction that actually will be cited when you get to the definition in 1854, that um, it's sort of, you know, um, um, prevenient or, pre or preventive or uh, in that way. Uh, and that'll become more or less the de facto, even, even though Dominicans right up until the 1850s are never really want to accept this at all. They're, they eventually do, obviously, by the 1850s. But um, they actually adopt at one point uh, a different feast other than the, the conception of Mary called, I think, her, the Purification of Mary, just to avoid the, the word altogether. They're that sort of hanky about it. Um, and so you have that, uh, that issue there. With regards to Mary's assumption, this is not nearly as controversial. There's not nearly as much development. Um, the, uh, oldest, uh, the oldest uh, stories we have about Mary's assumption into heaven are, come from a collection of texts, apocryphal stories, of the sixth, late 5th, early 6th century, sometimes referred to as the transitus Mariae, the transition of Mary from earth into heaven. Um, they were widespread by the end of the 6th century. I mean, everywhere, pretty much every, every liturgical language you can think of, Latin, Greek, Syriac, Coptic, Orthodox, uh, Coptic, uh, Ethiopian, all over the place. They were wildly popular, which describe her, her death and then her assumption, you know, into heaven, body and soul. And um, we also, of course, have from uh, early period, 6th century, early 6th century, um, the Feast of the Dormition in the East, the Dormition of Mary, the falling asleep, of course, of Mary, um, as well as we get to the seventh century, we have homilies written for this purpose where we talk about, which testify to the widespread belief in the assumption of Mary into heaven. Although it's interesting, they also talk about some of these early homilies in opposition to this idea. So it's never, again, uh, maybe total, total ascent in that, in that regard. But, um, and you'll have writers like John of Damascus, you know, from um, this what, ninth century, eighth century, I can't remember what his century is. Um, tying this, of course, her assumption to the incarnation of Christ. And so there's a real, this one seems to be sort of more natural, I guess, in some ways for people. Uh, I should mention, by the way, this feast is also present from the same time period, basically, in the Oriental churches, the, um, again, Coptic, the Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian Coptic church, those sorts of churches as well. Uh, and it will be introduced into the West uh, by a pope in the 7th century, Pope Theodore, uh, in the 640s. Quickly adopted. There's some initial opposition, but not much. Uh, and the name of it, it comes into the uh, into the East as the Dormition of Mary gets changed to this uh, to the Assumption, I think, in the seventh century, uh, and then that's basically that's basically it. The one the one sort of caveat about this is that there is a tradition, and among the patristics, there's no this is a tiny minority position. You will have uh, Franciscans mostly from the 17th and the 19th century insisting that Mary never actually died that she went straight from heaven without actually dying. And I mention that because this will actually get into the definition uh, in 1950, um, uh, as I'll show you in a moment. Um, but it's a minority position, tiny, tiny minority position uh, on the whole. So that's the background for this in terms of the development of these ideas. So why does Pius IX, the pope in the 19th century, uh, define, uh, think he needs to formally define the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception? So we need to go back to the early 19th century and talk about what's going on in the Catholic world uh, at that time period because the major thing that happens in the uh, uh, early 19th century, the, early, the biggest sort of earthquake, of course, is the French Revolution. Uh, the French Revolution, of course, sort of upends the old social order in Europe, and it's damaging to the church in Europe, um, both at a physical level, the desecration, destruction of churches, 
um, the sort of, uh, you know, in some cases, martyrdom of uh, religious and priests. Um, but it's the major, major sort of conflagration to which a lot of, uh, it's the sort of, you know, it's the sort of violent confrontation with modernity that the church has to sort of endure in the early 19th century. And I won't go through this uh, in too much detail, other than to mention, I'm sure most of you know, that even at a level of um, ritual and um, symbol, the French Revolution was, in its radical phase, deeply, deeply anti-Christian. You probably know about the revolutionary calendar they put together, which wiped away the old Christian calendar. You probably know about the Festival of Reason, which was supposed to be a replacement for essentially Catholic rites with this sort of creepy, sort of naturalistic, literally, they had a, a whole festival with like this, yeah, it was really weird. My point is, there's a very, um, the French Revolution unleashes a lot of social, intellectual forces, which are basically point their guns at the church. Uh, and I have to sort of stipulate that and leave that there to move on. But um, what's going to happen in the wake of that is you're going to have a revival really fairly quickly, really by the time Napoleon gets into power in the early 19th century, which um, I'm going to label, give the label of romantic Catholicism to, and I don't mean, by the way, that they, you know, I don't mean it was all squishy, warm feelings and stuff like this, if you know anything about romanticism, um, but it is a sort of emotionally charged reaction to not just the violence of the, of the uh, French Revolution, but to, you know, enlightenment condemnation of not just the Catholic faith as a whole, not just its political authority, but of course, Enlightenment thinkers, even Enlightenment thinkers in the church. And there were Catholic priests, clergy, who were deeply influenced by the Enlightenment in the 18th century in France, um, had a contempt for popular piety. And one of the things that's going to happen in the early 19th century, there's a book, a very famous book, um, published by a, uh, uh, a French nobleman named René, René, René Chateaubriand, called The Genius of Christianity. And in this, he will emphasize uh, what he thinks is the gene, gene means Christianity means Catholicism. Uh, he's a Catholic. Um, what he means by its genius is its ability to inspire devotion because of the beauty of its rituals, beauty of the mass, stuff like this. In other words, he puts a lot of emphasis on this sort of ability to attract the emotional devotion of its adherents. And in fact, there's going to be a popular revival of Catholic devotion, Catholic spiritual life in France and other places across Western Europe in the 1810s, you know, 20s, 30s, uh, eventually reached England uh, in the 1840s when Pius IX and the second. Uh, but you're going to have pretty quickly after 1802, after um, Napoleon in France reestablishes the church essentially, invites it back after the revolution's essentially over, and you're going to have the recovery of popular piety, uh, the veneration of saints, uh, pil local pilgrimages. These things will sort of be uh, widespread again. Um, this will also happen, especially in Germany at a later period, in the 1840s, they'll have an increase in things like Marian devotion, stuff like this. And then in England, uh, above all, you have, and this is directly related to Pius IX, the, uh, the Pope who defines the Immaculate Conception, uh, he will literally, literally re, uh, reinsert the Catholic hierarchy into England in 1850. He will actually reestablish Catholic bishoprics where there had been none since the Reformation. Um, and of course, this is, by the way, benefiting from a wave of conversions from the Church of England, Newman, Cardinal Newman, uh, Henry Manning, uh, Frederick Faber, people like this in the 1840s and 50s. So there's going to be this Catholic revival, um, which is, again, I call it romantic Catholicism. You might, you might call it counter-enlightenment Catholicism, because it is kind of a pointed response in some ways, not, again, consciously, but almost subconsciously to this 
over excess of reason, this over, you know, this over, this too much skepticism of popular practices and, and devotions. Speaking of which, uh, one other thing that's happening on the eve of the definition of the Immaculate Conception is that Marian devotion is sort of bursting out everywhere. If you don't know, or if you do know, um, um, there are several very, very influential Marian apparitions that occur. Uh, most famous one, 1830s. Uh, Catherine Labore has a series of visions in which she um, meets the Blessed Mother. She tells structure to, to design the miraculous medal. If you've seen this stuff, you get this stuff in the mail probably from, from, uh, from uh, uh, this sort of things. And in one of these visions, of course, she's surrounded by the words, quote, O Mary, conceive without sin, pray for us, we have recourse to thee. Um, 1846, uh, eight years before the definition, you have, of course, uh, another apparition reported at La Salette in France by two children. So very famous. Again, they were investigated and approved by church authorities. So this stuff is flowering at the time that uh, Pius decides to do what he does. So one of the things in the background of this is the Revolution of 1848. Because if you don't know anything about Pius IX, you should know that he came to the papal throne with a not really totally deserved uh, reputation as being something of a, and again, I don't have time to define this for you, liberal. And mean by that meaning he he was sort of he had some sort of sympathy for some of the aspirations of people in Italy for things like well nationalist aspirations because if you don't know Italy in the 1840s was divided into different kingdoms it wasn't one country it never had been since antiquity and he made certain gestures to certain figures in Italy it seemed like he was more receptive to this than other people and one of the things you have to understand here is there's a real real deep resentment of certain types of uh, Italians, usually again inspired by Enlightenment ideals, against the church's you know political power, especially. Um, and uh, Italian nationalism is one of the more explosive forces in the early, in uh, 19th century, early 19th century Europe. There's a lot of revolutionary activity. Uh, you, you know names. You don't need two names. You should know Giuseppe. Uh, Giuseppe um, it's not Giuseppe. It's um, it's not his first name. I can remember. Garibaldi is the main uh, revolutionary. Uh, but Giuseppe Mazzini was the man who founded the Young Italy movement, which is this, again, it's this sort of um, nationalist movement uh, founded um, uh, in the uh, early 19th century, uh, has been pushing for unification of Italy since the, uh, the 1830s. And um, again, these people are inspired by ideals that are you know, Enlightenment ideals. They're pretty anti-clerical, most of them. But they are also, there's also something I'm going to call something populist about their ideas. That is to say, they make an appeal to national unity over and above, you know, religious unity. You know, they want to unite Italy, despite the fact that you have Jews and Protestants in Italy. You understand what I'm saying here? They're making an appeal to the Italians as a whole, almost as a sort of opposite or alternative so a locus of loyalty to the church. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, in fact, I'll make the comment now. Italian nationalism, as a, in a general respect in the 19th century, maybe even today, I don't know, um, sometimes has a sort of quasi-religiosity about it. Um, and this is kind of where I, I think I'm going with this in terms of my answer. Um, and uh, the revolution of 1848 takes, well, it's revolutions, plural, sorry, I should put that up there. Uh, there are revolutions, if you don't know, in the year 1848, which hit most of the major European capitals, including Rome. Um, what happens there is that you have a push for the creation of a constitution, for the papal states, which the pope is the ruler of. 
Pius IX will accept this, but he doesn't want elections. He balks at this. They hold the elections anyway to the people of Rome, and half the city comes out to vote, for, vote in these elections. Um, but the sort of tipping point came when the revolutionaries were pushing for a war with Austria. I don't want to fight Austria. If you don't know, Austria in the 19th century controls large parts of northern Italy. They want to kick them out. Again, the nationalists. And um, a, a war, by the way, which would have ended bloodily if they'd actually tried it. Uh, would have been a disaster if they'd done this. Pius IX says he doesn't want to uh, start a war with Catholics and refuses to support it. Later that November, uh, in 1848, uh, some radicals uh, among the nationalists assassinate Pius's essentially his prime minister, the person who governs the papal states for him. At this point, he freaks out, leaves the city in, um, in disguise, and um, what happens is eventually in February of 1849, a republic is proclaimed, which lasts all of four months. Uh, but you have people like Mazzini. They actually, <laughs> they actually establish a government of a triumvirate of three people, just like ancient Rome, essentially, um, which doesn't last long. Uh, why? Because Pius IX... Um, this is one of the reasons it's a bad reputation among certain historians and modern thinkers. He appeals to the French to come liberate the city, which they do. Uh, they eventually kick uh, the Republic out, Garibaldi and his men out, and they eventually put Pius back on the throne. This is where you get the, the sort of narrative that he betrayed you know, his liberal sympathies or something. He was never terribly liberal, to be honest with you, uh, in any sense, even the 19th century sense. Um, but it's a narrative you kind of see out there. But my point is, this marks a sharp turning point for Pius, if he had any sympathy with any sort of ideals of the Enlightenment, either politically or doctrinally, <laughs> that's all gone after the events of 1848. Um, but it's also, I think, in the, he never says this explicitly, but it's also, I think, in the back of his mind, a couple of things. And um, I mentioned the sort of populist nature. This is the flag of the Roman Republic of 1849. If you can't read that, this sort of dirty old flag, it says, Dio e popolo. Which, if you sounds about what it sounds like, God and the people, and again that sense of like, oh, it's just God and the people, no church in between. There's a little bit of that sensibility about what's going on in the 19th century. Why do I mention this? Because when he comes to define um, uh, the Immaculate Conception, formerly in 1854, one of the things that he actually he doesn't mention it in the text itself. I'll show you the actual definition in a second is that since uh, going back to at least the 1830s, uh, when his predecessor, Gregory XVI, had issued a, uh, an encyclical called Mirari Vos, popes had been sort of uh, issuing, again, encyclicals, letters, uh, condemning certain forms of what I'm going to call enlightenment naturalism. That's a real malleable term, naturalism. But what I mean by that is basically ideas of human nature that are kind of incompatible with Christian belief or Catholicism. What do I mean by that? I get, there are materialist theories, obviously, which are incompatible with Christian belief. But I would even go farther than that. Things like the idea that uh, human nature, um, for example, can't understand the divine, sort of agnosticism or skepticism about being able to understand revelation, stuff like this. Um, they paint with a broad brush to their popes of the early 19th century and some of their encyclicals. But uh, I'll say this, I think they actually have a point. Uh, I think they're actually right to be concerned about that. Um, and in fact, you can kind of see the Roman, Roman Republic as, again, sort of like the Enlightenment in arms. It is the representative of people who want a more, what can you say, naturalistic sort of religion. And I think that's what they're reacting to. And I don't want to step on any toes here. When, I, when I've researched this, I used to wonder, some, not all, um, some Catholics get really, really obsessed with Freemasonry, and I've never understood why. Because I, I can't take Freemasonry seriously at all for any reason. But 
Freemasonry is kind of, it presents itself as kind of like a naturalistic religion, kind of like the sort of thing. Like we, don't, we don't need any sort of church. There's nothing really supernatural you have to worry about. It's just you know, natural principles or ethics or something like this. Um, and this is clearly a train of thought. Uh, the first encyclical that actually Pius IX issues when he becomes Pope in 1846, which is called uh, Qui Pluribus. Um, well, I'll read a, a section from him. Here's This is uh, 1846, Qui Pluribus. Uh, quote, he says, they teach the most holy mysteries of our religion are fictions of human invention, that the teaching of the Catholic Church is opposed to the good and the prerogatives of human society. They feel as if philosophy ought to reject the tr those truths that God himself, the supreme and merciful creator of nature, has deigned to make plain to men as a special gift. Uh, these en enemies never stop invoking the power and excellence of human reason. They raise it up against the most holy faith of Christ, unquote. And you see there what, kind of what I meant by naturalism. They're opposing reason to faith uh, as well. I'm lumping things together that aren't necessarily the same thing, but I think they all kind of have that same trend. Human nature is not compatible with what the church teaches, which is why I think he wants to, one of the reasons he wants to define the Immaculate Conception. Um, he actually does send a little bit of a survey to Catholic bishops across the world. He doesn't really, he's not really asking for their approval. He's just trying to get a sense of them uh, in 1854. He is very much invoking uh, his own uh, authority as Pope to do this. Well, he doesn't do it very strongly if you read the whole text. Um, but um, he does mention at one point that the opportune time had come, quote unquote, for defining this. And again, I think his reasoning is, okay, you say there's no sort of you know, connection between humanity and divine. Oh, here's somebody who has a really intimate connection with the divine. Really, if you take the doctrines, if you believe the doctrines, no human in history, of course, has had a more intimate relationship with Jesus, right? Literally, literally as a human being, if you believe you know, God is both God and man, he literally had her DNA. <laughs> That's the intimate relationship between her and Christ. Um, and so, um, and I'll, I'll read this out in a second, I'll show you in a moment, but um, uh, uh, he doesn't really give much of a reason, my point is, for defining. He just says, this is what the church believed, goes to some of the background, and then gives his definition. In terms of responses to this, um, there's not, I, again, this is, I don't think I had enough time to actually sort this out. Uh, there doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of Protestant reaction to this, partially because this is kind of an intra-Catholic thing. Uh, one of the people who does respond to this negatively is, if you know, um, God, I've forgotten his name, one of the people who was in the Oxford movement within the Church of England in the 19th century, was a friend of Cardinal Newman, uh, wrote a book, and his name escapes me, but basically trashes uh, uh, Marian devotion among Catholics. Uh, and he'll get a response from Newman, which he will come out and defend uh, fairly forcefully the idea of Immaculate Conception. Um, and um, I'll go into too much detail, I don't have it in my notes here, but it's about the only one I can think of the real big, you know, again, most Protestant theologians, of course, reject pretty much most of the things that Catholics believe about Mary, so it's a little different. More interesting is the response of the Orthodox to this, because for the most part, there's no immediate response at all. Uh, in fact, in the 1850s, there's a professor in Athens at a university there who says, we have no problem with this, this is what we always believed. Um, but by the time you get to the end of the century, you do have a response to it in a couple of different ways. One is that you have, um, in 1884, the first official, and it's not even a, a formal doctrinal statement or anything, the Holy Synod of the Church of Russia, and this is the sort of, you know, Peter the Great invented this thing in the 17th century, and it sort of governs the church in the Russia, issues a sort of polemic against, you know, Latin heresies, and finally lists for the first time the Immaculate Conception as being one of them. 
that's one in 1884. The only truly formal response in any way to this is actually a letter that was published by the um, by the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Ecumenical Patriarch. Um, I believe I have the name. Yes, Anthemos the Seventh. I like that name. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good name. I like that. Um, which I mean, it has basically two sentences about it in the whole 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 letter. And kind of hints, I don't have it in my notes, I didn't have time to put it in there. Uh, it's on the internet, you can find it, by the way, uh, in Google search. Um, basically hints that the real, real reason doesn't like it is because the Pope defined it. Um, and actually, it's a response, by the way, to another letter by another Pope, Leo XIII, uh, writing to the, Eastern, uh, to the Eastern Orthodox churches. So there's a sort of uh, delayed reaction to it, if uh, any at all, really, in a lot of ways. Um, even though it's, again, when they do address it, and of course, if you, you read polemics about it, yes, today, most Orthodox will reject this pretty much out of hand, but it really is not condemned in that way until well after 1854, is my point, at least as far as I could tell. And here's the definition. <coughs> Excuse me. We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which upholds the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by, God, by Almighty God, in the view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race was preserved free from all stain of original sin. It's a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Uh, on pain mentions later on, on pain of like whatever penalties of canon law he mentions. So um, there you have it uh, in uh, stark terms. Yes. So what about the assumption? Um, about 100 years later, 1950, the background of this is very similar in some ways to that of what happens with the, with the Immaculate Conception, um, partly because there was an upsurge of Marian devotion in the same time, um, general uh, vicinity. Uh, most famously, the visions of Fatima, 1917, during World War I, um, which again, this, uh, uh, I'm not big up on, my, uh, on, on Fatima, to be honest with you, but this is something that's been uh, prominent devotion to, this, uh, to this, these apparitions. There are apparitions in the Low Countries, in Belgium, and uh, the Netherlands in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, I think the last one's in 1945. In the Netherlands, all, all been investigated, papally and officially approved. So again, and again, you can, I don't want to get into this in too much detail, because um, in fact, in a lot of ways, there's never been a sort of do uh, drawing down of Marian devotion. It's always been things like this, but still, um, there seems to be, again, another upsurge during the wars. You have the founding, founding of course, of uh, several uh, influential Marian religious orders in the church. Um, what's the guy's name? Oh, God, I've forgotten. Saint dies in Auschwitz, or one of them. Uh, this is the Polish priest. What's that? Colby. Col uh, yeah, Maximilian Colby. He found one of these religious orders. Um, that's, um, again, dedicated to Mary. So, again, there's an upsurge of piety in the early 20th century. The other thing that influences Pius XII, he's the pope who uh, will do this in 1950, is the situation in Europe after World War II. Because, uh, of course, you were coming to the Cold War. And, um, of course, Europe is divided uh, after World War II. Of course, it just went through the two greatest conflicts, basically, in world history. Uh, the Holocaust has been revealed in the wake of the war. Things have been really bad. So um, it's, uh, that is part of the immediate context. What's also part of the context, of course, is the church really, really hated communism, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Uh, well, actually, it hated Nazism, too. It, Pius XI issued encyclicals condemning both uh, during his pontificate. And um, the church is very active, by the way, um, politically against uh, communism in, in post-war Europe. Um, but of course, and this is the thing I want to emphasize, it has more or less some of the same concerns that it had in the 1850s. 
about modern materialist, materialist ideologies, ideologies that de deny that you can have any sort of knowledge of the divine, that sort of thing. In fact, I'm, as you'll see, it's actually more explicit in uh, the definition, the assumption that it was in the definition of the Immaculate Conception. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that brings me to Munificentissimus Deus. Oof, my Latin's terrible. Um, issued in 1950 by Pius XII who, and he mentions this uh, specifically in the document, had issued a letter in 1946 to the bishops of the world in which he did ask them for the, uh, formal approval of uh, the definition of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Is it time to do this? Is this a good idea? And it was, I think it was like three people who didn't. I'd like to know who they were, who didn't. <laughs> who thought, thought this stuff, you know, this is definitely not true. We can't do this. Um, and again, this is in a contrast to Pius IX, who <laughs> didn't, really, you know, didn't really care about this. Of course, what Pius, of course, is different uh, does slightly differently as well here is that since 1854, of course, the doctrine of papal infallibility has been formally proclaimed, and he invokes that uh, officially. This is the only time it's ever been officially invoked was for this uh, for this uh, purpose. And um, interestingly enough, he notes the very beginning of the um, the beginning of the encyclical. Well, I'll read what he says. Quote, just like the present age, our pontificate is weighed down by ever so many cares, anxieties, and troubles by reason of the very severe calamities that have taken place, and by reason of the fact that many have strayed away from truth and virtue. Nevertheless, we see we are greatly uh, consoled to see that while the Catholic faith is being professed publicly and vigorously, piety toward the Virgin Mother of God is flourishing and grow, daily growing more fervent, and that almost everywhere on earth it is showing indications of a better and holier life, unquote. So it's kind of only implicit in, uh, in Ineffabilis Deus, the uh, uh, encyclical of uh, Pius IX, is explicit. This is a response to the calamities of the age in many ways. Uh, he mentioned, goes on to mention uh, that the assumption, quote-unquote, shone forth more clearly, unquote, in the age that he's living in. Uh, and he actually explicitly links the doctrine of the assumption to the doctrine, doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, he spends a lot more time, does Pius XII, on the history of the doctrine than Pius IX did, explaining what it is, why the Church actually holds it. Um, and um, uh, also, it uh, says some interesting things. I'll read a couple of these, these passages, because, again, I think they make explicit was kind of there uh, in Pius IX's encyclical. It says, quote, since the universal church, which dwell, which dwell, within which dwells the spirit of truth, who infallibly directs it toward an ever more perfect knowledge of, of the revealed truth, truths, has expressed its own belief many times over the course of centuries. We believe that the moment appointed in the plan of divine providence for the solemn proclamation of this outstanding privilege of the Virgin Mary has already arrived. Uh, and he goes on to say, and this is the key part here, um, quote, we are confident that this solemn proclamation and definition of the assumption will contribute in no small way to the advantage of human society since it redounds the glory of the most blessed trinity to which the blessed mother of God is bound by such singular bonds. It is to be hoped that all the faithful will be stirred up to a stronger piety toward their heavenly mother and that the souls of all those who glory in the Christian name may be moved by the desire of sharing in the unity of Jesus Christ's mystical body and of increasing their love for her who shows her motherly heart to all the members of this august body. And so that we may hope that those who meditate upon the glorious example Mary offers us may be more and more convinced of the value of human life um, entirely devoted to carrying out the Heavenly Father's will and to bringing good to others. Thus, while the illusory teachings of materialism and the corruption of morals that follows from these teachings threaten to extinguish the light of virtue, and to ruin the lives of men by exciting discord among them, 
In this magnificent way, all we may see clearly to what a lofty goal our bodies and souls are destined, unquote. Uh, that's a pretty, again, explicit statement. They're opposing this to, again, all those doctrines I sort of talked about earlier. Um, and so it brings me to, I'll get to the definition in a moment. It's pretty short. Uh, I will say one thing about this, and again, I, I didn't honestly have a lot of time to go research this aspect of it. Um, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of response whatsoever, uh, either in the Protestant or the Orthodox world to this. I think by this point, of course, one thing to keep in mind is that in the light of the Cold War, there was probably not a lot of willingness to criticize each other because they probably all saw communism as the big threat at this point. Most of the churches did. Uh, a few, there were a few Protestant theologians. Um, and we know who Karl Barth is. He was the major, he said some nasty things about it. But that's about, I mean, there were a few, again, we're talking theologians. And I, that's one thing I haven't talked about here that I, maybe if we have time afterwards to discuss. We are talking about something that is, you know, popes define these doctrines. You shouldn't think of this as a top-down process. This was wildly popular when he did these things. And there is some, actually going back to the Middle Ages, Western Middle Ages, I mean, um, there's a clear sense of a divide between what you might call the intelligentsia, who aren't always thrilled about this stuff. In other words, they, it sounds a little bit like they don't like popular pie that much. Whereas the popes in, this, in the 19th century take, if you like, a sort of, uh, religiously speaking, populist turn uh, in favor to bolster um, you know, these devotions, which again, to again to the learned, to the Enlightenment-inspired skeptics seem like, oh, this is so silly. Uh, they're sort of turning to try to sort of defeat all this stuff. And perhaps that's the reason why there's a, such a muted response to it in 1950, although it seems to have been received very well in the United States at the time. Uh, and here is the definition. Uh, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and uh, soul into heavenly glory. Hence, if anyone which God forbid should dare willfully to deny or to call into doubt that which we have defined, let him know that he has fallen away completely from the divine and Catholic faith, unquote. And notice, by the way, what he says, and just to come back to what I, the point I mentioned earlier, that when she, having completed the course of her earthly life, notice what he doesn't say, doesn't say that she died. Why? Because it's a nod toward, they didn't want to totally condemn those Franciscans who were still kind of hanging on to the idea of her being uh, just gone straight into heaven, basically. Which kind of, I mean, I mean, that's a real minority opinion. You'd think they'd probably go with the, the majority, but they didn't, I guess. I guess they thought that wasn't a wise thing to do. Um, but that is the definition. So, I'll end with a few questions to answer my initial question. So, if somebody, you know, is going to ask a Catholic, like, okay, why do you have to define these things now? Especially because we already have so many divisions amongst Christians, right? If you're talking about the Marian dogmas and Christian unity. Um, one criticism might be, these are, are these politi aren't these political definitions? Weren't these done for political reasons? You know, you have, I mentioned the revolution 1848, anti-communism. And my response would be, that would be, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't see actually any problem with that. Um, you know, the church is not merely, it is a heavenly and an earthly thing. It is a power in the world. And, you know, something like, you know, revolutionaries like, um, I mentioned Giuseppe Mazzini because he's a fascinating figure, this 19th century revolutionary. They're, they really are, um, they really are vying for the loyalty of the, of the members of the church. They're trying to, you know, it's a rival, and you have to react to your rival to be bluntly honest with you. And I think it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make much sense to me for someone who doesn't believe what you believe to tell you you shouldn't defend your own beliefs. 
And I think that's, I think it's a pretty cheap accusation to make, to be honest with you. And by the way, I, when I say all that, especially Pius IX, he's very controversial. Was he way too attached to certain papal prerogatives? Oh, yes, <laughs> he was. Uh, he was probably too attached. But uh, at that point, it looked like the entire papacy was under siege. It looked like, again, it's hard to overemphasize. People tend to, um, when they sometimes talk about uh, um, the state of the church uh, today, you know, we're going through this doctrinal confusion, they'll sometimes say things like, well, this is the worst crisis of faith in the Catholic Church since the Protestant Reformation, skipping totally over the French Revolution, which was just as important. Uh, it, really was a, <laughs> it really was a cataclysm in many ways. So no, I don't really. I would reject that and say yes in a way. Yeah, it was. If you mean you're supposed to defend your flock, which I think is what Pius was doing, and definitely Pius XII. Uh, were were they papal power grabs? And again, this accusation would come from the fact that um, the papacy became a lot more centralized in the 19th century. Um, popes from Pius IX onward became had a lot more direct control over the day-to-day -day life of the the Latin Church than he'd ever had. Ironically, part of the reason for this is because with the revolutions of the 19th century, the church was you know, definitively separated from the state. You no longer had the state intervening in church affairs anymore, so the pope had a free hand to do what he liked. Seriously, the popes now are more, have more control than they ever did in the Middle Ages, not even close, in terms of appointing bishops. Because in the past, you would have, you know, kings would insist on, this is my, have, to have, have, to, have to choose between my candidates, otherwise, no go. Uh, all that comes to an end. And the pope all of a sudden has a lot more direct control over the, the, if you want to call it, the religious administration of the church. So in a way, yeah, but that was kind of inevitable given what happened. They couldn't stop the revolutions at that point. Um, why Marian doctrines? If what I've said about, okay, the church was responding to all these naturalistic ideas, they seem to be, just take a look around you in the modern Western world, I, I think it's pretty obvious these have doctrines have had an effect on people's faith. If you're going to try to oppose them by defining a doctrine like this, why choose the Marian doctrines? Why not choose something else less controversial? Um, I would say that basically um, anything that affects our beliefs about, for a couple of reasons, anything that affects our beliefs about human nature affects our beliefs about Christ. And um, one of the things, and this is, again, if you're talking about papal authority, for example, um, in the 19th century, Cardinal Newman um, um, expressed his opinion of papal authority that was, for the most part, a negative thing. At one point he says it's, uh, he thinks the charism of the Petrine office is that of a break or a remora, a, remora, a sort of break on development of doctrine where it goes wrong. Uh, and what you have here, of course, there's no, there's no crisis of faith in terms of Marian belief. It's actually flourishing. So normally when the church defines doctrines, it's usually because there's some sort of heretical challenge to it. I would make the argument that you have a challenge to it. It's just not coming from technically within the church anymore. It's coming from an ex-Catholic naturalized modern society. And so you maybe you needed a novel way of dealing with it to a certain, well, not novel in the sense of being a contradiction of earlier beliefs, um, but you needed to, to sort of head it off right where they were attacking you, right? They're attacking you in human nature, so what do you do? You talk about the, the, the human being who has the most intimate connection with the divine in human history uh, to oppose that. Uh, and of course, because it is, it is something that, of course, is widely shared by, and uh, leave Protestants out for a second, by, by Orthodox and, and uh, Catholics at a local level. I can't think of, I mean, yeah, there are probably some feminist theologians somewhere who hate Mary. 
Nobody else does. Nobody's going around attacking the Blessed Virgin. Even, I, actually, I know liberal Catholics who are kind of hanky about some of it, but they would never go around attacking. Never. Who hates their mother, right? Mary is, you know, a, a source of unity in many ways. And so to me, it seems, and even today, I mean, um, take our current pope. A lot of us maybe have some problems with him. You know one problem that's not with uh, uh, the current pontiff? No one doubts his sincere and very authentic devotion to the Blessed Mother. Nobody. So even among all the divisions we have in the modern West today, that's something that still kind of unites us to a certain degree. And then finally, okay, say you accept what I've, I said already. Okay, it was meant to sort of, you know, try to buttress the church's faith against modern, these modern ideas. You, haven't they failed? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, since the 1960s, you know, practice and belief have gone off a cliff. Two responses to that. Um, in the West, perhaps, but uh, globally speaking, oh, hell no. <laughs> uh, they haven't gone off the rails there. Uh, Mary, of course, Marian devotion is flourishing elsewhere outside the West. Uh, and yet, to go back to my last point, even in the West, that is still something, Marian devotion is still something that binds Catholics together. And um, she remains, for the most part, uh, again, popular as ever, I think, in a lot of ways. And finally, a couple of things um, about relations with the Orthodox and um, Protestant churches. Uh, I think I've hinted at this already, but Orthodox objections, whatever some of their polemicists may say, I think they're mostly about papal authority. Um, I mean, it's true, I mean, again, it's true that, you know, there are Orthodox theologians, you know, again, saints, Church fathers who denied this, but I think they kind of get and understand the basic doctrine. I, again, you ask any Orthodox layman, I mean, they, they can't, they're like everybody else, they can't say enough wonderful things about the Blessed Virgin, they'd have no problem, I think, assenting to it, but it does come back to issues of authority. Obviously, Protestant objections run much deeper, and I can't, obviously, in this, this setting, uh, with a couple of minutes left here to go through, you know, how you would address objections to that, but... Um, Although there have been in recent years, I've noticed um, evangelical theologians trying to work out what they think about Mary in a little more self-conscious way, because it is kind of an odd thing to have no, you know, you believe, you know, personal relationship with Jesus, but, you know, his mother, no, it doesn't make a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Uh, but finally, and just, again, just to end, you know, in terms of, you know, why those doctrines, I come back to Mary as a source of unity. Um, because, you know, um, because she is, <laughs> she is the mother of us all in some ways. And again, you, most of you are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well-formed Catholics. You know the whole idea of the new Eve. She sort of you know, makes up for the sin of you, all that stuff. That, that stuff is, it's like her mother's milk. I, I wasn't raising Catholicism, but again, you probably, probably you, again, you have all that. And so uh, as a sort of source and symbol of unity, I mean, she's kind of indispensable for us. So there's probably never a bad time, in other words, to uh, to uh, to uh, define uh, more of her uh, more of her uh, uh, her nature uh, for the faithful. Uh, that is it. That's all I got.